Well, good morning, everyone. This is so exciting to have a number of faces here within our auditorium to see uh, some people, some bodies. It is so incredible to uh, stand in this spot and actually, you know, engage with some faces looking back at us as pastors. Um, I'm sure Justin was just as delighted when he got here first. And also to you all who are at home still, it is still a, an honor and a pleasure that you all have uh, tuned in in the way that you have this morning. We pray that this experience for you still in your homes, that it'll still just be as valuable as those who are here with us in the auditorium. Well, let's jump into Romans 2. So if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to open to Romans 2. We will get there soon enough. So even if you have your physical Bible with you, that is cool. If you have an iPad or a phone with you, you can log into your Bible Gateway app or whatever other Bible app you have, and feel free to use that as well. Romans 2, we will come to that soon. So I grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes. I think I've shared with this congregation before that it was something that my family did growing up, uh, quite religiously almost. Um, We bought all the books and we devoured them cover to cover, and we did that multiple times throughout the years as, as I grew up. I loved Calvin's outlook on life, his, his continual quest for fun as that little six-year-old spiky-haired little boy that he is. I, I love Hobbes' reasonableness, his quick thinking, his level-headed approach to life. It was just so fun to engage with and interact with. You see, Calvin also has this pretty wild imagination, he, one that would allow him the escape that he needed as he would go about his long days at school, as he would face the bullish behavior of the schoolyard bully, Mo. He would have the same reactions and imaginations as his mom would set a plate of dinner out in front of him. You see, Calvin would take us to lands of of dinosaurs, and he would fly planes over the mountains, and he would also take us to this distant planet called Zorg, where Spaceman Spiff was the sole superhero. These aliens that, that Calvin interacted with in his mind, uh, they characterized his mom. They characterized his dad. And if you remember little Susie, the girl next door, Susie often found herself to be an alien, whether she knew it or not, likely not. Also, she t- he talked about how his principal would become an alien as well as his teacher, Mrs. Wormwood. We're going to read through a panel pretty quick like here. Do we have that there, Hilda? There we have it. So we're going to look through a panel here. This is one of my, one of my favorites as I went through this. So our hero, we, we already have, at the start of the, the comic strip, Calvin is already lost in his mind's eye and looking into his little gun there. So our hero, the valiant spaceman Spiff, is marooned on a strange world. I'll set my myrtleizer to deep fat fry. Calvin, you're not paying attention! We join spaceman Spiff on the distant planet Zorg. Zounds! Trapped by a hideous grachnal, Spiff draws his trusty atomic napalm neutralizer. Choose electric death, gnarly cur. But the weapon is useless. Spiff is doomed. Our hero makes a break and ducks into a nearby cave. Whew, what's that awful smell? Eep! Who is that? Beats me, Fred. Slam! As the teacher's lounge. Sorry to the teachers who are out here watching with us. I love Calvin Hobbes. Thank you, Monique, for laughing. <laughs> I love the second panel here. Calvin, you're not paying attention. And you see on Calvin's face this complete look of joy. This kid is lost in his imagination in this whole other world. He has no recollection what is happening around him. And this face just says joy. 
There's another strip, another, another one that's just great. Calvin's flying around in his spaceship through this distant world. He's exploring. And this time we find him that he's all alone on this lifeless planet. In the last three panels here, there he is in his classroom, all alone, all alone. Darn it! Why doesn't everyone ever tell me when the lunch bell rings? He exclaims. You see, Calvin has been completely lost in this world that he doesn't even sense and hear the reality of life happening around him. He sees out now that he's missing out on something in life. No longer does his face show this same joy and excitement. This kid is sad. And this is all, of course, not mentioning the interactions that he's had with Hobbes, his real-to-him, larger-than-life stuffed tiger. And so as Calvin has trapped himself in this false sense of reality, this false sense of security, I put it, he's missing out on the real joys in life. He's missing out on real relationships. He's missing out on playing with real friends on the playground. He's sitting in his classroom alone at lunch. And as much as it is fun to look at Calvin's life as a super fun, fun-filled life, and I know I've said those things before, it's also a little sad The only relationships that he has with any kind of positivity are with his parents. And even the kids in this house and the kids in this room, have you ever dreamed of your parents being aliens? Hey, you're not allowed to raise your hand. That was my daughter, by the way. (laughs) I knew she would. That's okay. She's imagining it right now, right? Oh, they are now anyways. Sorry, I lost my place. But really, Calvin hasn't considered or has considered his parents to be anything different. They were aliens themselves. And I feel a little bad for Calvin. That in his quest for life, he's only able to find this joy and the security when he's lost in his mind's eye. And I couldn't help but also feel bad for the early Christians as Paul was writing to them as well. In the book of Romans, similar to Calvin's imaginary worlds, these Christians have been lulled into patterns of practicing religion of practicing their faith in such a way that they gave them a false sense of security. As they went about their rituals, as they went about their ceremonies, and they went about their habits, they were completely missing out on the point as to why Jesus even came in the first place. And even now, for myself, as I've grown up in, in, a, in, the, in the Christian world, I was born and raised in a Christian family. All through kindergarten through grade 12, I was at different Christian schools. I went to three different post-secondary Christian education places, I've been a part of six different churches. I've been a Christian, an avid follower of Christ for 24 of the 40 years of my life. And I still find that I and our larger Christian community, we sometimes still struggle with these very same things, that we miss out on the point as to why Jesus really came. So we're going to look at Romans 2 with these contexts in mind. So today we're going to be looking at the difference between being religious and having that living and breathing real relationship with Jesus. And then I was just thinking about it, being religious in my mind, I, this is the way I'm kind of framing it for us and our purposes here this morning, being religious is, is, is kind of checking off the to-do list items of our faith, marking things off as we go just to say, I've done it. But being in a relationship with Jesus is all about recognizing that it was his words and his actions that initiated anything and everything that we have to be thankful for. So we're going to be asking a question here all along the way, is how are we religious in the 21st century? And I first put it like this, is that we think that we are safe because of our knowledge of God. We think that we're safe because of the knowledge of our God. 
So starting in Romans 2, verses 17, where Paul writes, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and he will uh, know and, uh, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, Paul takes a pause there, so we are going to as well. So Paul here, he starts out with a pretty controversial statement. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, but if you call yourself a Jew, he says. The statement would never, never have been said in the company of any Jewish person, as, as they were just so exceedingly proud, proud of, of who they were, their nationality that they had, the, the identity and the heritage that they were a part of. Paul follows along by saying six different things that affirms their proudness where they were at. He says, you call yourself a Jew. And this word Jew, it means a praise to Jehovah. Again, the Jews were incredibly proud of who they were, who uh, they, they belonged to, and even how their title pointed themselves back to who God is. And so much so that as you would interact with a, uh, with a Jewish individual back then, likely if you were meeting them, you would go, hi, my name's Adam Van Dopp, Jew. And they would say, well, I'm Cohen Levinsky, Jew. They would put it as a title in their name to really strongly affirm that this is who they were and this is what they belonged to. So Paul goes on and said, because of that, you also now, you rely on the law. And this law was given to Moses, as we, we well know, the first good bunch of uh, the, the books of our Bible here, centuries before. And the Jews, they prided themselves on this knowledge, that, that God appeared through his spirit to Moses and allowed him to pen the very words that they hang on. But what is unique here is that they saw this honor, not in that it was God who gave it to them, that they belonged to God because of it, but they saw this honor in their hearts because they were the holders of the law. No one else, it was them themselves alone who got to hold it in their hands and in their hearts and in their minds. No one else did. And because of that, they had this boasting spirit in God. Now, now boasting in God isn't all that terrible. In fact, we can be super proud of the work that God has done, the work that God includes us in, and those are good things, but that's not what the Jews were being boastful of. See, they're being boastful of this us and them difference between themselves and everyone else that were on the face of the planet. So they boasted in God that God had chosen them. They felt that they were once, uh, sorry, they, they felt as though they were once and they would always be the only and very children of God. And because of that, they responded by saying, we know his will, we are aware of what he does. So the law that was revealed was revealed just to them and only them. And even there's language within it that we're going to look at soon enough that indicates that it wasn't just for them, it was for them to share with all of the others. But they heard it as this was only for them. And therefore, there's again that difference of us and them. There is this higher moral judgment call that they were able to make so that they could, again, perpetuate this difference between themselves and all of the Gentiles. And they treated this as excellent, as Paul indicates. They saw themselves in this knowledge as superior to anyone and to everyone else. Theirs was the only excellent way to God. Theirs was the only way to find who, Jesus, who God was. They didn't have Jesus yet. And then also they're super proud of how they were instructed in the law. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And they lived and they breathed that in every aspect of who they were. So Paul points out six things that these, these Jewish individuals were super proudful of. 
But these are all also great things, things that you and I here today would actually kind of live into. We would affirm these things and we would say, yes, these things make sense. As we see that God has provided a structure for living that has provided a way of a road that goes back to himself. But the problem is, is that the Jews were initially designed to see this as an invitation. They ended up using it as a bit of a measuring stick as a bit of a measuring tape where they place that distance between others. They were given these words to say, hey, world, come to us and come to find God and, and enjoy this life within him. But instead, they use it as a measuring stick to put distance between themselves and all of the others. So much so that this Roman historian guy, his name is uh, Tacitus. He was a, a historian that did history stuff in the same generation that Paul was writing these letters. And he writes this, amongst themselves, the Jews, their, their honesty is inflexible. Their compassion is quick to move. He's, he's watching these individuals with this, uh, they're, they're a great community with, within themselves. They love and care for each other. But to all other persons, they show the hatred of antagonization, antagonism. They're purposely looking for ways to challenge this. They're looking for ways in which they can continue this divide between us and them. So these six points, they should have inspired within this early Jewish community a deep heart to share all that they had received with all of the others in their lives. But instead, just the exact opposite occurred. These points produced a prideful, an arrogant, and a loveless people. And so Jesus, in his words, as he's speaking to our, our Jewish community, and he's, he speaks to our Jewish friends, our Jewish leaders, in Matthew 23, and he has a good lot of things to say about these Jewish individuals. Matthew 23, 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a proselyte, when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much of a hell, oh, sorry, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What I find fascinating even about this passage here is that Jesus acknowledges the fact that the Jewish leaders were doing their job. They were traveling across sea and land and they were making converts. Their Jewish community was in fact growing because of the efforts that they were making. And we sang a song earlier called uh, Reckless Love where it mentions in the chorus, he goes after, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And you know, when I read a passage like this, you want the sense that there's got to be a party somewhere along the way. That heaven is rejoicing as another soul is saved. Jesus talks about that. As, as a shepherd, he would leave the 99 and he'd go search after the one who was missing. These are good things. But what Paul and Jesus are both talking about in these contexts is that the Jews' mission wasn't to grow God's kingdom. The Jews weren't seeking to grow how the, the breadth of God is in, in their communities and in their life and in their world. What they were doing was trying to grow their own kingdom. They were trying to do this themselves for their own purposes. And so this is where they find their false security in religion. Once they were doing the right things, once they were having all of the right habits, they were just fine, just operating on their own, and that's where they felt that their salvation was secured. It wasn't just, though, about doing the right things, but also it was about reading the right things. So again, we ask the question, how are we religious in the 21st century? Well, let's pick up at verse 21. As we look at, we think that we're better off because of our knowledge of the Bible. So Paul, at verse 21, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, you who hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Pause there again. So I remember Saturday afternoons growing up again as a kid. Uh, my dad and I would often do stuff around the house, uh, stuff around the property, mow the lawn, clean up the chicken coop, and other various projects. And towards the end of the day, Dad and I would come to the freezer, we'd get out our bowl, uh, bucket of ice cream, and uh, we would scoop ourselves some ice cream just to say, hey, job well done at the end of the day. He would scoop his bowl of ice cream, and my dad, being my dad, if you ever met him, he would probably say, like, yeah, that's probably true. He would scoop himself a gigantic bowl of ice cream. It would actually, we used mugs. And that mug of ice cream would be packed full. We'd jam it down, he'd add more on top. And me being the kid that I was, wanting to be like my dad, to follow in his footsteps, I would do the same. And he would be like, whoa, 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 that's too much. You can't do that. You've got to put some back. But me and my, probably my teenage angst, wanted to point out the obvious. But he would say, and dads, if you know what I'm going to say, say it along with me. Because I know I've said it, right, kids? You'll find out soon. Don't. Do as I do, do as I say. Don't do as I do, do as I say. And he'd make me put ice cream back in the bucket. Maybe that happened once or twice. Sorry, Dad, if that hurts you. I know you're watching. The thing is, with the Jewish leaders and what they're doing here, too, is that they're doing the exact same thing. They've told their people, don't steal, and yet they steal. They've told their people, don't commit adultery, and yet their eyes are wandering all over the place. If, who knows what else they've told these people, and they've done it themselves. But there's that fourth statement there where he writes, you who, uh, it's, it's even such a funny word, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who hate idols, do you rob temples? So this one needs a little bit further explanation as there's, it's a little bit weird. So the Jewish community, we know this, they were taught that uh, idols was not a thing. There was never to be any place for idols in their lives. The Ten Commandments, the first two start with it, saying, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. Well, what biblical scholars think what Paul is alluding to here is actually kind of a sad thing. Is that the the Jewish leaders would go into the temples. This is what they're, they're thinking is going on. That the Jewish leaders would go into the temples of these pagan religions around them. That they would steal the idols and the centerpieces and the statues from these other temples. They would take them for themselves. They would melt them down into the raw form of the materials. Then they would go and sell those materials for their own profit. Line their own pockets with that money and say, hey, we did a good job. Kind of messed up, isn't it? Is that going to grow God's kingdom? What if you and I today, after we're done here in church, and all of you are watching at home, we all say, let's go to all of the temples throughout Abbotsford, let's go into all of those spaces, their special spaces, take their statues, take, take their special relics and all the things that they have, sell them for profit, take our money that we've earned from them, and fund our next missions trip. Fund our next ministry startup. Could you imagine the uproar in our town if that is what we did today? How quickly would we be as a church be shut down? That just would not be any good. It would just be insane for us to do. We would do more harm than good for God. We would simply tarnish the name of God, of Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to loot and to wreck the homes and the temples. So Paul calls his readers out on the same thing in verse 24. As we again look at how are we religious in the 21st century? Well, our failures become other people's barriers. 
And so Paul puts this this way, and it hurt me each time I read this passage in verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. I'm going to read it again. The name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. The reality here is that we so easily undermine our mission by not being who we have been called to be. We, we so easily undermine our mission because we're not being who we've been called to be. An old professor of mine, his name was Brian Cooper, uh, went to Acts Seminary and he was, he was a super neat professor. I wish I could have taken more classes with him. I follow him on Facebook and he wrote this just the other week. Uh, it was actually a post that he shared from a number of years ago, but he, he shared this, talking about churches. He says, our communities, our churches, are like trees that bear fruit for the benefit of all, whether it is appreciated or not, or, or whether it is even consumed or not. Unfortunately, many of our churches are less like trees, and they're more like refrigerators, which are designed not to produce fruit, but rather to preserve it. The sad reality is that such fruit may retain its appearance for a time, but it nevertheless inevitably will wilt and will rot. Fruit is intended to die. The only choice whether or not it will die productively. Fruit that falls from the tree is always productive. Fruit that rots in the fridge is not. So Paul writes this rather scathing remark about Jewish customs and Jewish practices that they're, what they're doing and how they're living their lives is actually doing more harm than good. They're tarnishing the name of Christ in the works that they are doing. So on the same day I saw my professor post that particular comment, I went to our fridge at our home for some strawberries. And I pulled the bin of strawberries out, put them on the counter, and the grim reality of this quote sat there on my counter right in front of me. This pack of strawberries had grown all that beautiful white fuzz. They were brown and black and kind of gooey. Well, into the compost bin they went. And we were saddened by this fact. We weren't impressed that this, this had happened to the strawberries that were, that were uh, grown, picked, packed, shipped, bought, and stored for our family to enjoy. The thing is here, folks, I've never said the word folks before. The thing is here, friends, <laughs> is that Paul is telling us that God is not impressed when our actions do the same thing, when our actions defame his name. God is not impressed when we go to our life groups or our Bible studies or we hang out with friends and we, we study God's word in community and we end up gossiping in our prayer time about our friends. God is not impressed when, when we go to church on Sunday morning looking and sounding our best and we go to work the next day and trash talk our colleagues or maybe go to school the following day, the following week, and we bully our friends. God is not impressed when we go to the grocery store singing along with Praise 106.5 along the way, and we go inside the grocery store, and we're rude to the cashier, and we're just rushing around our fellow shoppers. God is not impressed when we're talking to our neighbor, and we sound just like the world around us. As we read more of what Paul writes, through the rest of the book of Romans, we get the understanding, the impression that God is impressed with a life that produces more life, a faith so deep and trusting that it produces more of the same, a love so inspiring that people are drawn to him simply because they want the same things in life. So those strawberries that I threw in the compost bin, they would have been better off if they never were picked, if they were just left on the farmer's ground 
wherever they were, probably in California, if they're just, the seeds were to enter that dirt once again so they become new plants. That would have been better off rather than into my compost bin. But Pam and I, we've seen this in our backyard before where we see new life. And it's really, really neat. We love, we love our backyard. We love gardening. We love having our space look really, really neat. And so we have this really cool tree. It's called a coral bark maple. Now, at this point in life, it's actually not doing too well because there's something going on with it. But in the past life, it was producing seeds. And these seeds would drop to the ground, and they would fall into the soil below it. And I would, I would pick them up as they grew new trees. And so this one little tree one time I found was about maybe a couple inches tall. And I dug it up super, super carefully, put it in its own little pot, put it in a spot in the backyard where it would get some of the water from the sprinklers, where it would get some of the natural sunlight. And wouldn't you know it, it grew, because that's what things do. But the cool part is, is just the other year, I think we planted it last year, last summer, right beside our house, uh, by our front porch, and uh, it's now about three feet tall and doing really, really well. And earlier this spring, one thing I was, t- I, I, I was super happy to see is that it produces its own little seed pods. This new little life was now already producing more life. I was eager to see this week if I saw some still on the ground, but I didn't see any on the ground anymore. Wind will kind of take those things and fly them away. But in the context of these analogies, how many of us feel more like the strawberries that expired in my fridge versus my maple tree beside my front porch? How many of us feel stuck in the refrigerator, wilting and rotting, and not outdoing what it is that we've been meant to be doing. Which gets me to think about this next point, that we take for granted what God has provided for us. We take for granted what God has provided for us. So how are we religious in the 21st century? Well, this one gets pretty interesting, folks. Again, folks, I don't know where that's from. Romans 2, 25. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, if he does all the good things, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Will not he be seen as good? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the, who have the law, who have the written code, and circumcision but break the law. So we're not going to go into too much in detail here. But it's not lost on me that we're talking about being take, taking something for granted on the very first Sunday that we have people back in the auditorium. It's been, what, 458? 458 days since we've last had people in this auditorium for such a service like this. And sometimes it feels like in the conversations we've had that we take for granted all the things that God has given us in, in ways in which we can worship together and the ways in which we can gather together. So it's not lost in me that we're talking about how we take for granted what God has provided for us especially when we think about subjects like this one. So it's not lost to me. So Paul, so hear me out as we, as we travel through this. So Paul talks about this thing called circumcision, which is a sign that God gave to Abraham and his family. Turning back to Genesis 17 here, God's, God's talking to Abraham here. And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you and throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to be your God to the offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after, after the, in the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep 
between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male amongst you shall be circumcised. So what God is doing here was giving the people a way in which they could be physically marked for his own good, for his own glory, for his own purposes, not for their own. So we're going to back up a few more chapters here to Genesis 12, and there's something really, really neat there that I, I think I saw for the first, one of the first times this, this past week. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, before he turned to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's that last line, I don't think it really hit me home until I read it this week in this kind of context. You see, it's the actual missional element of this promise that God gave to Abraham. It's him saying, go into all of the world and do good for me. Don't just do good for yourselves. Go into the world and spread my name throughout everywhere. That his love and his affection are not just a gift for the Israelites. They're not just a gift for the Jews. But they're a gift for the entire population of the world, past, present, and future. But what did they do now with the sign? Well, they took for granted what God gave to them. And he, they made it something that it was not. You see, initially circumcision was all about God's work and his activity and us following. But over the centuries, the sign had been reduced to a ritual and to ceremony. It became just what families would do. Sons would be eight days year old and off to the Jewish priest or moil to have that ritual completed, to carry on with life following. Whether it made a difference or not, we don't know. But I find also interesting, on the same day again, as we're talking about circumcision, we also witnessed Maverick's baptism. At Gateway, we love infant baptism. Better yet, we love calling it covenant baptism. As we see that God has made some pretty incredible promises to us, like we saw in these texts from Genesis, that God will be our God, that he will do literally all that he can in order to draw us all towards himself so that we can live life as his children. But however Maverick here, I think he's awake now, he was sleeping. Did you notice that during this baptism? As Pastor Justin baptized him, as uh, Martin presented Maverick down. I believe he was sleeping, right, Martin? So Maverick had no idea, let alone the fact that he's, what, three or four months old? Two months old? Let alone the fact that he's two months old and asleep. Is this little guy going to have any recollection of what happened here this morning or last week? Absolutely not. Do you remember anything that happened when you're two months old, when you're sleeping? He will have no recollection of these events ever, unless Martin Andrew, as his parents, tell him. Unless we, as his church family, live in such a way and do church in such a way that he begins to grow and to see the love and care of his church family. Unless 15 years from now, when he's surfing the internet and going through the gateways history of all of our live stream events and he sees his picture and his name there, which might happen, it might not. But we do these sacraments in community where Martin and Andrea, where they've presented their son to receive these promises, where they've committed to raise him in such a way that he's going to know about these moments. We do these things in community as a church family so that, so that we will do together all that we can do to see that he is raised in such a way 
that he's going to experience that love and care. So that whether it's at our church or another church down the road, that he will stand in front of his church family and maybe we'll be so fortunate to be there ourselves. Where he says, I'm in. I too am a child of God. And I live and accept all of his promises. You see, circumcision for the Jews and baptism for us here at Gateway only have value when we give it its intended significance. When we live into those actual points and promises that we've said that we are going to do. Covenant baptism loses its significance as a child never hears from their parents the choices that they've made. Covenant baptism loses its significance if the child never experiences the love and the care from their church family. It's kind of like my wedding ring. So Pam and I just celebrated our 17th anniversary yesterday, and we're pretty excited that we were able to share that day together and to share the 17 years that God has given us together as, as wife and husband. But our marriage is more than this ring that I wear. This ring is really, really cool. It symbolizes so many things, and the coolest thing about these rings is that they symbolize this everlasting circle of love. It's pretty neat. We as pastors love to use that as that story and analogy as we do weddings. But this ring is only as valuable as my commitment to love and honor Pam, my wife. This ring is only as valuable as I promise to keep and uphold the promises that I made 17 years and one day ago. You see, this ring, if I was to never put it on again, Pam and I would still be married. Our marriage is not this ring because a ring doesn't make a marriage. Circumcision doesn't make a Jew. Baptism, sorry if this offends you, baptism doesn't make a Christian. As Paul indicates here, he writes to his Jewish audience that a Jew can only be a Jew in their heart and not with any physical sign, not with any ritual or ceremony. As those signs in their lowest form, they'd become all about seeking value from each other rather than from the Lord. So number five, our final point here. How are we religious in the 21st century? Well, we seek affirmation from each other rather than from the Lord. Verse 28, chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Not by the letter, not by the law, not by the things that are written. But his praise is not from man, but it's from God. So in Matthew 6, going into one of my favorite portions of Scripture, I know I've told you that before. Jesus has this whole element of Scripture there called the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 6, he talks about giving to the needy, he talks about prayer, he talks about fasting. And what's super neat here is he says these things. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5, talking about prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and, and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And when you fast, verse 16, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you have received your reward. But what, so we see Jesus here poking these jabs at all these Jewish leaders. 
who are going through the motions just for the show, just to be seen by the others, just for the pat on the back. And Jesus tells them, great, you got your pat on the back. Do you feel good about that? Wonderful. You've been seen by the men and the woman that you wanted to be seen by. Fantastic. But in each of these comments, he says something a bit more. Six verse three. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse six, speaking of prayer, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 17 and 18, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, well, he will reward you. Perhaps what Jesus is getting at as he's talking about all these things but being done in secret, he's looking at what's happening in our hearts and in our minds and how we'll go about living out the actual faith lives that we have. Timothy Keller puts it this way. A hallmark of dead orthodoxy is a lack of an inner life, a hallmark of a dead orthodoxy, a a dead way of living out your faith is a lack of an inner life, the things that happen within our minds and in our hearts as we choose to follow God. In other words, when, when all we do is go through the motions, when all we do is go through the things that it is that we do in our lives and in our faith without letting them have an effect on our faith lives, we're simply destined to that failure. We fall prey to what Paul has already said in verse 24, that the name of God is blasphemed because of the gen- of, among the Gentiles because of you. So wrapping up, where do we go from here? Well, how do we respond? This has been a pretty, pretty tough uh, passage of Scripture to walk through. I feel like we've maybe been slapped across the face five or six times. The problem is that no one can keep and fulfill the human side of God's covenant. That is following through with his commands and living his, the way that he's asked us to live perfectly. In fact, we all know we are fully incapable of doing this. It's our sin nature. It's our depravity that prevents and limits us. You see, Paul is emphasizing once again that what really happens behind the scenes is that Christ loved us first. That Christ's death made possible our salvation. He made possible our righteousness in front of God the Father by the very fact that he put himself upon the cross. Colossians 2, Paul writes it this way on the same topic to his friends in that town. Colossians 2, verse 11 through 15. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who are dead in your trespasses, you who are dead in your sin, sorry, I just totally lost my place, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all the trespasses by the counseling of the record of the dead. Because uh, this whole thing's about we should be dead if we continue in the life of sin. But he canceled that debt and stood against it with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it all to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What a fun passage. I wish I had more time to walk through that. 
But where do we then really figure out how to live a life that is in relationship with Christ and not just checking off the boxes of our faith lives? Well, one, our relationship with Jesus starts with seeing that salvation is a matter of the heart. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. There's no ritual, there's no ceremony, there's no hoops you have to jump through in order to live this life that is in salvation from God. For the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, love to talk more about that, but here we are. Our relationship with Jesus is as evident as we exude him to others, as we share him with others, as we uh, live lives of him to others. 2 Corinthians. Wrong one. 2 Corinthians 2, five, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. I love this one. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men and women of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. We can't do this on our own, folks. We need God on our side to exude him to the others because we just simply can't do it on our own. Finally, a relationship with Jesus means that he sees us. He sees us as forgiven. He doesn't see our brokenness. He doesn't see all of our shortcomings. He sees us as forgiven. We're going to walk through a few more texts here just quickly. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows his compassion to all who fear him. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Colossians 1. 13 to 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Paul is talking about these people that were talking about sharing this, this light, but really they operated in this mode of darkness. And Paul now says, he has delivered us from that domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Finally, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, as we seek and embrace forgiveness that Christ offers us, because you and I, we perpetuate these, these rituals, these ceremonies, and these habits. We, we neglect his words and his invitations to us on an hourly, if not minutely, basis. But Jesus doesn't see that because he sees us as forgiven because the work that he did on the cross, the blood that he shed, the body that he had that was pierced, was for us to be seen as forgiven. Which means that we don't have to live like the early Jews did. We don't have to live every letter of the law to its greatest per of perfection just to be seen by our friends, just to be seen by our families, just to be seen on the street corners doing it. That's not the point. We simply have to give ourselves over to Christ to enter into a relationship with him and embrace a life filled with his love and his forgiveness, which ultimately leads to obedience, which we're going to hear about over the next number of weeks. So friends, let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, 
Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge that it presents to us in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the time, Lord, that we could gather, uh, whether here in person in our auditorium, our home, comfortable on our couches. Lord, that we could hear the challenge that you have for us. Lord, that you could speak boldly to us. Lord, you so badly and desire us to come back to you fully realizing that we are in fact clean from our sin because of the work that you have done. So help us, Lord, by your spirit in this coming week to really exude you to the others, to really realize, Lord, that we are forgiven, but, Lord, to see that change happen in our heart of hearts first and foremost. So, Heavenly Father, give us a great, fantastic day wrestling through some of these issues. But tomorrow morning, God, help us to wake up with a new heart and a new mind, God, that is focused on you and your word and your challenge for us this week. These things we pray in your name. Amen.